Welcome to A Manner of Speaking, a podcast about the evolving world of environmental law. I'm Cheryl Gerhardt McClucky, a lawyer practicing in environmental law at the full-service law firm Man Lawyers, located in Ontario, Canada. Let's get started. Hello, you're listening to A Manner of Speaking. I'm Cheryl Gerhardt McClucky. Today, we are going to be speaking about director liability in the context of commercial and environmental litigation. Joining me is Christopher McLeod, Head of Commercial Litigation at Man Lawyers. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. Chris, could you just tell us a bit about yourself and your areas of practice? Sure. Uh, I'm the Head of Commercial Litigation at Man Lawyers. I practice predominantly in the area of commercial litigation, so this is business disputes. But uh, I also have a specialty practice in in public procurement law, so both advisory and disputes, uh, where we assist uh, clients who are contracting with the federal government, and sometimes things go sideways and they need legal help in that respect. Uh, And then I also do some estates litigation because, frankly, more and more we're seeing crossover issues between the commercial world and the estates world. It's quite a varied practice. Who are your typical clients then? Yeah, so typically uh, business owners, shareholders are my typical clients. In terms of your commercial litigation practice, what kind of disputes are you generally dealing with? Yeah, so we uh, deal with contractual disputes between companies where one company you know, is claiming that there's been a breach of contract against another. We deal with shareholder disputes between shareholders where um, the ownership structure of a business has a falling out for whatever reason. Uh, and then, you know, obviously, uh, on the procurement side, we deal with companies interacting with government entities as well. So pretty much all things related to to business disputes uh, we deal with. And then again, on the estate side, we deal with estates typically when there are commercial interests involved in the estates. And are you seeing frequently claims that are brought against directors and officers as well as the corporations that they govern? Yeah, we we do see that. That can be a difficult case to make out, uh, but it's not impossible. Um, And really, there's a fairly precise test set up by the courts uh, and that's developed over the last 20 years in respect of trying to attach liability to directors and officers or other key management personnel. And in fact, also attaching liability to shareholders in the sense that, you know, attaching liability of one company to either a parent or a subsidiary. And, you know, there's there's a test, of course, but reading between the lines, it's often an issue that comes down to the equities. Um, and so there is a tool for the courts to use uh, to go there. Okay. And we, uh, we know the courts have maintained this concept of separate corporate identity. However, obviously, directors and officers may and have faced personal liability for their actions. Seems to be a concept uh, known as piercing the corporate veil. Can you please describe that concept for the listeners? Yeah. So, you know, one of the foundations in the commercial world is that a company, a corporation, when you incorporate a company, it takes on a separate personality at law. So it's it's basically a separate person at law. It has the ability to contract uh, with parties as if it's a real living, breathing person. And that's that's kind of a foundational concept that's been around for you know hundreds of years. Piercing the corporate veil is is when a party asks the court to look past that separate corporate personality and look look to attach liability to the person the the, the human being behind the corporation. Um, and so 
courts, as I mentioned, will do that, but it's they do it sparingly because they don't want to they don't want a fundamental unfairness to happen, uh, but they also don't want to completely dispense with the separate corporate personality, which has been the foundation of corporate law forever. Uh, and so they're very, very cautious, and they and they they basically limit it to situations where either the company has been incorporated for some fraudulent or inappropriate purpose, or where all of the human beings that are in control of the company have knowingly caused the company to do some sort of fraudulent or illegal or improper thing. So it's it's really, as I mentioned earlier, it comes down to the equities a little bit in the sense that if the court thinks that the result is going to be unfair unless it pierces the corporate veil and where, you know, there's serious conduct at play, it's got the tool in its tool belt to be able to pierce the corporate veil and go there, but the court will only do it sparingly. Um, so an honest breach of contract, even an intentional breach of contract is not necessarily going to allow a party to pierce the corporate veil. It's really got to be something illegal, fraudulent, improper, almost morally improper. So this would be a concern for directors and officers who may have more hands-on involvement with a corporation as opposed to someone who's asked to sit on a board, for example, who may not be involved in the management of the company itself. I imagine the concerns are different for those directors. Is that a fair statement? I would say that's fair. I mean, the more hands-on, then the more direct control you have over the actions of the corporation. It's the same, you know, it's the same with closely held companies. So if you're a shareholder in RBC and RBC does something improper uh, or fraudulent, it's not likely that uh, that someone's going to be able to attach liability to you personally because you own some shares in a publicly traded entity. If you're talking about a corporation where there's one shareholder it's, you know, John Smith. John Smith owns all the shares in the company that he incorporated, and that company has done something fraudulent. Now you're looking at a much more likely scenario of piercing the corporate veil. It's interesting as an approach to uh, in the environmental world, in addition to the concept of piercing the corporate veil and, and those traditional commercial litigation tests that are that are applicable for that, they've actually created a statutory liability under the Environmental Protection Act that uh, really could result in and has resulted in director liability for an environmental issue. It's interesting. It's it's almost like the, the corporate statutes are designed to separate the individual from the corporation, but then your EPA statutes uh, really do the opposite in certain circumstances. Exactly. So it's Section 99 of the EPA that we're dealing with, and it provides for a statutory right of action for the recovery of losses and damages that are incurred as a direct result of a spill or the failure to carry out a duty imposed by an order or the provisions of Part 10 of the Act, which is known as the Spills Bill. So pursuant to Section 99, such claims may be brought against not only the owner of a contaminant, but also a person found to be in control of a contaminant. So there's one very notable decision, which is a decision of the Ontario Court of Appeal called Midwest Properties Limited in Thordardson. 
And in that case, the director of the defendant corporation was found personally liable under Section 99 for the plaintiff's damages for remediation costs. Mr. Thordardson was found to be in effective control of the day-to-day operations of the defendant corporation, which was a small business, and he was largely in control of the management operations and, and whatnot. So he was found to be a person in control of the contaminant and therefore subject to liability, even though the contaminant itself was owned by the corporation. So that is a very interesting case from a director liability perspective uh, in terms of environmental issues. And, and I think highlights the importance of addressing environmental harm. Yeah, it, it's it's certainly broad reach, it sounds like. And does that extend, you know, not only to directors and officers and shareholders, but but also to employees who are who are directly in control. Like if you're a if you're a mid level employee at a company, you don't really have decision making authority, but you're responsible for whatever it is that's about to contaminate the land. Would ninety nine reach that far? Do you think? I think it could potentially it could because it's not a strict director officer definition, right? It's a person who's in control of the contaminant, and that could very well be someone in a management position or even an employee who is the person who's responsible for maintaining a particular chemical on the site, ordering it, storing it properly, make sure it's used properly, et cetera. If you're in control of the contaminant and found to be so, I don't think your actual named position is necessarily the distinguishing factor here. To date, the only case that we have dealing with a director liability under Section 99 or or liability of a person in control of the contaminant is the Midwest Properties decision. So we don't have any real guidance from the courts as of yet, but I think arguably the liability could extend to positions far broader than just directors. Well, it's interesting, right? Because I mean, when we're talking about piercing the corporate veil in the context that I typically deal with it, it's usually, you know, you've got two, uh, you've got private parties involved, right? It could be more than two. And obviously there's considerations for the law in general, but I guess in your instances, you've got this other interest that's out there, the environmental interest, which kind of stands alone. And so it's interesting because, you know, maybe that's the, maybe that's the policy reason behind the broader approach uh, under, under the EPA or the potential broader approach is that, you know, you've got this other stakeholder, the environment involved in this. It really doesn't have a say in what's going on, but it's certainly impacted by the result. And, and so I guess the, you know, if you're, if we're talking about bringing all this back to the equities and what's fair, if I'm a court, I'm thinking, well, uh, I've got to get to the right result here, not necessarily the one that's permitted explicitly or not. So I can interpret, if I can interpret it in a way that will allow me to get the right result for one of the stakeholders being the environment, I'll go there. Maybe that's what we're seeing in the case law. Yeah, it could very well be. I mean, section three of the EPA sets out the purpose of the act as the protection of the environment. And the courts have interpreted the statute as one to be interpreted very broadly with that purpose in mind. So certainly the overall goal of protecting the environment and dealing with environmental issues in a manner that sees a a contamination issue resolved and the environment restored. How you get there 
the statute gives you many different avenues. And, and one is the Section 99 statutory right of action that we've discussed. There's also a considerable number of provisions which impose direct liability and stated to be direct liability against officers, directors, management, persons in control from a regulatory perspective. And that's leaving that whole issue aside. There's many provisions dealing with that, as well as the potential for civil liability under Section 99. Yeah. And, and how far would that extend? I, I, so, it, and forgive me because it's been a while, but back, I think I'd only been practicing a couple of years, so probably 10 years ago or more, maybe 20 years ago. I don't know. I do recall a case in the paper industry, I had some clients in the paper industry, and they were, everyone's kind of shaking in their boots because I think it was Tembeck was basically a passive investor in another company that had some environmental problems and somehow liability attached to them. And I don't know, I know we didn't really plan on talking about a specific case on this, but I don't know if that's a case that you've come across before. I'm not so familiar with that case, but uh, I, I am familiar with some of the other cases that have come out, which have caused some some concern amongst uh, practitioners who are are representing corporations and their their directing parties. Um, there's the North Star case, which saw a liability being raised against the directors of a, a corporation that had filed for CCAA protection. There's a variety of different. Uh, prosecutions which have been launched, not all of them have reached a full conclusion. There's been some resolutions along the way. So um, some of these issues are are still getting fleshed out a bit as to how far the reach extends. You know, it it seems uh, attempts are being made to push it a little further, depending on the scenario, right? So in the North Star case, for example, that, that came out of a, an aerospace company, the uh, the approach of the MECP was to make orders against the directors and officers for failing to reserve enough corporate funds to fund the cleanup, which they knew was going to be necessary before making the decision to file for CCAA. So that case actually uh, resolved in the end, but there was um, a motion brought by the directors to stay the order because under the uh, EPA, there's no automatic stay um, when there's an appeal of an order uh, that um, actually was denied. So there was quite a potential for them to have to put aside or or invest a great deal of personal funding pending the appeal to fund this remediation effort. So that's just one example where the ministry has been attempting to reach a little bit into the into the directors and officers to see if they can address some of the environmental impacts that are left behind. Yeah, on the on the commercial side, we're we're seeing the courts kind of double down on the on the traditional view that that you know you basically start with the presumption that the corporation is a separate legal entity and there's no liability for officers, directors, shareholders. Unless you hit one of the exceptions, which is that the company was incorporated for an illegal, fraudulent, or improper purpose, or when the people in charge of the company expressly direct the company to do the wrongful thing. 
or it's being the company's being used knowingly by by those people for a fraudulent or improper purpose. So uh, and and there's been some recent case on that the Chevron case was the most recent appellate court decision in Ontario. And then it's, that's come up in, in advanced interiors, some other, and that builds on a long line of cases, Shopper, Struckmeyer, Fleischer, that all say the same thing. So it's, it's pretty locked down at this point in Ontario. I mean, it's very much a fact dependent situation on the, you know, the contracting side of the corporate commercial side. It's certainly not, I don't think it's the same vibe as you get on the environmental side where it looks like, the courts will go where they need, where they feel they need to, in a much broader way than they would uh, certainly pierce the corporate veil in a traditional commercial sense. Yes, it seems so. It doesn't seem to require that wrongful or nefarious or fraudulent conduct that that seems to be required in the commercial sphere. So it's definitely uh, a different atmosphere altogether when you're looking at these kinds of uh, liability issues particularly when you're providing guidance to directors and officers and those in control of the, or in management positions at the corporation. It's, it's definitely liabilities that they should be aware of if they're dealing with substances or materials that could create an environmental impact. Do you think a due diligence defense might come into play if you're a director or an officer of a company and you've got an employee who's you know directly uh, responsible for whatever the contaminant is before the contamination. I think that's what you said was the kind of the, the first level of liability there. So if, if you're a director officer and you've got, you know, robust training, robust policies on safety, and you've got this employee that is responsible for the contaminant, breaks all the rules, breaks the policies, causes the problem. Do you think that's enough for a court to say, you know what, we're not going to go beyond the employee to the directors and officers or beyond the directors and officers to the shareholders? Or do you think the court's going to go wherever it needs to to make sure somebody cleans up the mess? I think the court can go wherever it needs to. Um, there are some due diligence defenses available in respect of certain of the statutory provisions. There's debate in the case law as to when that's applicable or when it's not available. And certainly, at the instigation of the ministry in bringing the charges in the first place, right? In bringing the orders, the courts are needing to address some of these issues as the orders are becoming, I don't want to say more creative, but in a sense, more creative to try and address the environmental impairment. Interesting. Yeah. It's certainly, I mean, uh, you're the expert in this area and I defer to you on it. Um, my, my very, my very mild uh, knowledge of these things is that really the courts are taking an approach where they're trying to make sure the right result comes in the end for the environment. And so if they, if they need to use all the tools in their tool belt in order to get somebody to clean it up, they will. I think it would be a a little bit uh, scary, frankly, Um, if I was a business owner dealing with potential contaminants, I would certainly want to understand where the lines were and, and make sure I was doing everything I could do to make sure that uh, if something did happen, that I'd make available to myself all of the potential defenses. Definitely a, an approach that's the safest one for sure in terms of, of trying to uh, address liability before you even have an issue. Well, I think that's all the time we have today, Chris. Thank you for speaking with me about uh, these 
interesting and important issues. Hey, no problem. Thanks for uh, having me on your podcast. Thanks for joining me, Cheryl Gerhardt McClucky, for this episode of A Manner of Speaking. For more information on our environmental law practice or our other practice areas, visit our website at manlawyers.com to contact us and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at manlawyers.com.